I'm Professor Rob McLaughlin at the University of New South Wales campus at the Australian Defence Force Academy in Canberra. Welcome to this episode of the Australian Naval History Podcast series, where we examine an event in the history of the Royal Australian Navy. The Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales is supported in this series by the Royal Australian Navy, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia and the Submarine Institute of Australia. In this, the final of three episodes, we hear from historians who gathered for the 2019 King Hall Naval History Seminar, which discussed Australian Chiefs of Naval Staffs. Their collective work will be brought together in a future book entitled Australia's Naval Leaders. The seminar was held at the Australian Defence Force Academy in June 2019. This episode deals with the Chiefs of Naval Staffs who successively led the Royal Australian Navy during the modern era, from the last days of the Cold War up to the early years of this century. The discussion is led by Vice Admiral Peter Jones, and the panel consists of Rear Admiral David Campbell, Commander Alastair Cooper, Dr Jack McCaffrey, and Mr Will Westerman. First off, uh, Will Westerman, um, Vice Admiral David Stevenson was uh, Chief of Naval Staff from 1973 to 1976. Um, why was he selected and, and what was his uh, background for the, the position? So, David Stevenson, um, uh, for those of you who were in the, the previous session, I think could have really easily fitted into uh, to that mould of the, the admirals who were coming through um, Navy in the, the, the 60s and early 70s. Uh, he, had, he had a very similar uh, career path, uh, joined um, Navy in the, uh, the inter- interwar years, um, had postings at the RN, uh, operational service in the Second World War, um, and then um, uh, seagoing commands in the um, years thereafter, and this is all interspersed with um, uh, staff postings, and he did uh, staff um, staff courses as well in the UK, um, and then and then he goes on to go command Melbourne and um, has the usual suite of, of 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 senior appointments within the Navy. Um, but when we get to 1973, uh, with and um, Admiral Admiral Peak needs to be replaced, he's not the standout candidate to be the next CNS. Uh, really, it's a choice between three officers. It's um, Stevenson, um, Bill Dovers and Buster Crabbe. Um, and they're all, they're, they all have a, a, very, a very similar trajectory. They all do the very similar things, um, hold, hold similar positions at similar times. And so it is really a, a bit of a challenge and a bit of uncertainty, actually, who is going to be the next CNS. And I think um, to understand why they went with uh, Stevenson as opposed to the other two, we need to look back at um, Richard Peake. And I think um, Sam did a very good job in uh, the previous session of, of outlining uh, some of his challenges, but also his his, his personality and, and just the way that he approached um, the role of, of, of CNS. <laughs> In that, and I think he mentioned that um, Peak was uh, a seagoing commander who found it a, a little difficult and a little challenging to make the transition to, to Canberra and, and to op- operate in a, in a slightly different environment. And I think um, both Dovers and Crab would have been in a very similar position. They're both fine sailors. But I think they would have been slightly more uh, volatile than what the environment and what the context required at that time. Um, Stevenson was different. He, uh, and this isn't necessarily a criticism of Crab or Dovers, but he he was a bit more he was more cerebral. Uh, he was intelligent. He um, when he was at the Admiralty after the Second World War, he would um, 
on his 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 lunch breaks, he would go and, and learn a foreign language just as he was having lunch, then and then and then go back to work. He had a sort of there was this intellectual edge uh, to him. Uh, he was also very articulate and very personable. Uh, he had these qualities, I think, that, that stood out in the minds of those who who, um, who were looking for who who is going to work best in this environment. Um, and ultimately, I think that 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 decision about yes, he's he is a better fit for a position or a senior position in Canberra was what um, spoke in, in favour of him against the other two. And that was a, a very important aspect to have the, that those sort of characteristics and that and that, that that quality in this particular environment. Because again, as, as Sam alluded to or mentioned, um, you had Arthur Tang had just been in the process of. Uh, putting together his recommendations for his for the reforms that, that he wanted uh, for uh, Australia's defence organisation, those had been um, uh, agreed to, accepted by government, and then almost I think it was the same month that Stevenson became the um, the CNS. Tang's reforms were accepted by um, by Barnard, the uh, defence minister, and then it was let's put these into action. And that was that was going to be, and it was a very difficult time, not just for Navy, but but for all three services and for, for defence in general. And Navy required someone who wasn't going to rock the boat um, with the suite of quite challenging reforms that were that were coming Navy's way. I think that was in the minds of of those making those those decisions and deciding on the um the next CNS. Um, you want me to talk about the challenges as well? Or, uh... Well, I think what we'll do, Will, is uh, we'll just leave that there. We'll pause because we'll uh, introduce some of the, uh, the three other admirals we'll talk about in this session. So Stevenson, uh, he, as I said, he um, was in post till 1976. He was replaced by Vice Admiral Tony Sinnott from 76 to 79. But the, the next admiral we want to talk about or introduce um, is... Uh, Jim Willis, who was um, in post from 1979 to 1982. So, John Perryman, you've uh, studied his career. Um, what was his origins in uh, leading up to this position as Chief of Staff? Vice Admiral James Willis, known universally as Gentleman Jim Willis, um, came to the appointment on the 21st of April 1979. And unlike some of the other admirals that we've heard discussed today, I actually think that he was very, very well prepared for that top job. Um, he had had a remarkable seagoing career. He had commanded an exceptional number of uh, ships. Uh, his first ship at just age 22. Um, he'd seen action in World War II, uh, like a lot of his contemporaries. But when he came into uh, Canberra for the first time, I think he actually recognised that this was a change in direction for him in his career. And he understood that the environment was completely different. Um, his first appointment as a Commodore uh, put him in very, very good stead in connection with the DDL, the, the Light Destroyer Project. So he got a lot of experience there. Then he became the Director General of uh, Naval Materiel. Uh, he was then the Chief of Naval Personnel. He then went back to the fleet as the Flag Officer commanding the fleet. Um, and I think it's also important to note, and, and this really is important, that at one time he commanded Melbourne and he had also that association with HMAS Melbourne, the aircraft carrier, while he was the commander of the Australian fleet. 
So I think uh, as far as an apprenticeship and that transition from a, a professional seafarer and warfighting officer to someone who's going to be uh, eventually running the Navy, I think he was well prepared. I think he was cerebral, uh, to quote you, uh, and, uh, and, and that put him in good stead. Now, he mentions uh, in his oral history interview that he saw that his business was to advise the government on... The, the strategic relevance of what was going on in the region. And at that time, of course, the great adversaries were the USSR um, uh, and the US, and still at loggerheads in the Cold War, the emergence of China and so on and so forth. But the really big uh, game changer came in December 1979 when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan and all of a sudden the spotlight was on the Middle East. Now... There's, there's a number of things here that are interconnected. The big thing, which uh, if, if you want to uh, enliven uh, debate amongst uh, naval officers and naval people who, or people just with in a, an interest in the Navy, is to talk about the carrier decision, Melbourne Invincible, and this happened on Jim Willis's watch. So he was an advocate of uh, centering a task group around an aircraft carrier. He'd commanded one. He was a fighter directions officer. He'd had the experience in the Pacific in World War II and he was a firm believer in naval aviation and the capability that that brought to the Navy. He understood where that fitted in taking the Royal Australian Navy uh, to that self-reliance that we've heard about uh, and uh, a sense of autonomy. Um, Whilst other alliances such as NATO were great for Europe, we didn't have that in ANZUS. ANZUS did not give us a NATO. So it was quite apparent that we would have to, on occasions uh, or, or with increasing frequency, learn to stand on our own two feet. Now, following the uh, Soviet adventurism into the Indian Ocean, the uh, Royal Australian Navy sent a task group, a six-ship task group, into the Indian Ocean on what was the largest and longest uh, deployment by a uh, task group since World War II to show the flag and to demonstrate uh, that Australia had reached that autonomy. That was also in um, response to a request from the US that we would have to do more uh, in that region. We would have to uh, demonstrate a much bigger footprint, if you like. So that helped our cause, or the Navy's cause, about reinvigorating the carrier debate, and that set the wheels in motion. So there was all kinds of uh, uh, options being looked at. US carriers uh, were looked at. Uh, the Invincible one had been looked at, but had been um, uh, discarded as too expensive, and there was always the question about you know, what type of carrier Australia would need and what sort of aircraft would equip it. But then... Uh, in 1980, in February 1980, there was uh, an increase in defence uh, funding. That saw us get uh, a fourth uh, Oliver, Oliver Hazard uh, Perry class FFG to be constructed. That became the Darwin. And a decision was made in September that Melbourne would, in fact, be replaced. So I'll wind this up shortly. Um, so the good news was that at that point, Britain offered us the leadership invincible. We were mightily happy about that and, you know, as history shows us, um, that deal fell through and I'm happy to talk about that later on. But all of this was going on on his watch uh, against the backdrop of the normal things that have been covered in some of the other uh, sessions we've heard today. Manpower, recruiting, um, updating, all of that sort of stuff. 
Okay, so thanks, John. So I think you set the scene there in terms of one of the dominant themes was going to be the carrier decision. Um, so Jim Willis, he um, uh, retired in 1982. He was replaced by um, Vice Admiral David Leach, who served 1982 to 1985. And during that, posi- that time, that's when the decision was taken to finally not replace the Melbourne. So the next... Um, Chief of Naval Staff was um, Mike Hudson, who came in in 1985. So David Campbell, as we said, you were his uh, secretary. So um, was he well prepared for for uh, this uh, position and what was his background? I thought he was extremely well prepared. Um, he was an intellectual man. He had a good strategic vision as well as certainly very ambitious plans for the expansion of the fleet. And he was able to put that into um, into effect, drawing very largely upon his earlier experience. He'd been the fleet commander. He'd been ACOPS, ops. Uh, he'd been he'd attended uh, Canadian uh, War College. That sort of thing. So it was a typical background, as many of the other chiefs have enjoyed. But he seemed to have an added depth that the others lacked to some extent. I served as his secretary for three and a half years, and I reckon I got to know him very well. Um, Brian Adams, uh, who's unfortunately not here today to talk about Hudson, Brian Adams wrote a very good draft chapter, which I've had the pleasure of reading. Um, You'll just have to wait for that to come out, but it's a good chapter. Um, Hudson had the usual sets of problems. I mean, the whole environment is your relationship with money, your challenging of uh, numbers of people, and your difficulty, if not impossibility, of increasing those ceilings, and, of course, dealing with government. Those are the three perennial environmental factors. But in addition, just as his predecessors had uh, had to struggle with, he was living with the aftermath of the carrier. There was the FFG debate. There was um, uh, Tang, of course, living with the aftermath of Tang, which came in the, in the early 70s, and just continued to exacerbate and make the life of the chief miserable. Um, and, partic- and, and particularly with the advent of the CDF, uh, uh, w- uh, which came across at the end of Hudson's time. Hudson was a private man. He didn't enjoy a particularly warm relationship with his admirals, with the exception of Admiral Crosley, who was the chief of, um, of naval personnel. He was an interesting character in his own right. He'd, um, he'd joined the Navy as an able seaman, ordinary seaman, and he served in every, uh, in every rank. Uh, non-commissioned and commissioned alike, up to Rear Admiral. Hudson had a very high regard for him and trusted his advice. Didn't always trust the advice of his other admirals, which was a pity. He, um, he had a particular difficulty in selecting his successor, which is something that all the chiefs have got to spend a lot of uh, good time worrying about. He, he, he had difficulty grappling with that particular challenge. I think um, the particular issues he had to deal with uh, were the introduction of women, women at sea, and, and, and he, amongst others, like McDougall, later admitted we didn't do that well enough. I didn't understand the complexity of the challenge of having women at sea. And it certainly was true in his case, as well as with others. I think... Um, so perhaps uh, one other useful thing is that uh, Mike Hudson had a, a particularly long tenure. He did. Can you just explain why that was? Uh, it was the absence of an alternative. 
also, he got on extremely well with Minister Beasley. I mean, they were like that. Um, Hudson was able, with Beasley, to set in train the whole acquisition process for the Anzac ships and the second tier and the third tier and the uh, Collins-class submarines and so forth. It was Hudson's successor who had to implement some of those things, but these programs were well underway in Hudson's time and Beasley saw him as critical in the development of their, of their joint appreciation of what the Navy should look like. Uh, Hudson had a particularly good appreciation of the parliamentary system. Uh, what happened was that in a few years beforehand, there was an act of parliament which introduced the um, ministerial staffs. Hitherto, public servants had been there. Uh, all they did was empty the in-tray or out-tray, one or the other. Uh, but with the introduction of the ministerial staffs, all sorts of other outsiders were able to come in and advise the minister. Now, we cottoned onto that. When I say we, I mean Hudson and me. We cottoned onto that. Hudson was over there in the minister's office regularly and frequently, and I made a point of going over to see the likes of Hugh White, who was the Beasley's uh, staff at the old Parliament House at least once a week. And we were streets ahead of Army and Air Force in that regard. I put that down to Hudson. He was, he was shrewd. He, he dealt very well, uh, probably dealt better with outsiders than insiders in his Navy. For example, he set up a dining room in Navy office, the Sydney room. It was very nice. And the uh, whole idea of that was to be able to um, offer hospitality to uh, people's, people of influence in the press, in the parliament, industry, whatever. He was, he was astute and clever like that, probably better than anybody else that I can remember. Um, I really, I'm, I shouldn't steal Brian Adams's thunder, but he has written a rattling good chapter on, on Hudson and I didn't quarrel with anything of it. Okay, thanks David. Um, but there had to come a relief and the relief was Ian McDougall, the first submariner to be Chief of Naval Staff. So Alistair, uh, what was his background besides being a submariner? Well, besides being a submariner, he started out life as a supply officer. So um, in some ways, we've got the first supply officer to be um, the chief of naval staff. Um, however, he very rapidly, um, early on in his career, changed to the, to the, the seaman branch and particularly to follow um, uh, a, the submarine career path. So if you'd like... Um, you can almost draw a parallel between the career of the uh, the Oberon class uh, boats in the Royal Australian Navy service and and in McDougal's service because he started his career just as they were coming into service and he finished his career just as we were starting to to bring the Collins class into their successes into service. Um, in other ways, he he was different. Um, he was different in other ways as well. Um, he didn't command the carrier. Um, he had a different set of, uh, of experiences leading up to, uh, to his command. And, and as um, Admiral Campbell's pointed out, um, his predecessor, Hudson, had six and, six and a half year tenure. Um, if you go and have a look at the Navy list in 1985, which is when Admiral Hudson took over, and you look down to see um, who are the who are the admirals and commodores who are then in service, and then look to see who, would, uh, who is still there in 1991 when Ian McDougall takes over. I think there are only two from memory. 
two Commodores and they're both engineering, um, engineering branch, one engineer and one supply. There are no executive branch officers higher than the rank of captain who are still there at the end of Hudson's tenure. So there's been a huge clean-out, and, and that might reflect um, the, the comment that, that it was hard to replace um, it was hard to replace him. So he came, um, I think, I, I think you need to distinguish between the quality of the individual and their preparation. I think um, Ian McDougall is possibly one of the best officers we've ever had uh, to serve as Chief of Naval Staff, but I think he was underdone when he got to that position um, uh, because he had not had sufficient experience in the Canberra environment. I should note in making that point um, that un maybe unlike all of the other um, subjects that we're discussing today, Ian McDougall's still alive and, and, and very much able to have this conversation. And he disagrees with, with my observation of his, his career. Um, that's as may be. Um, um, but he's been good enough to engage about it. So... So I think um, I think he came to it with with obvious quality that that Admiral Hudson would have perceived, but that he simply hadn't had the time to be able to develop the relationships and and the depth of knowledge in the Canberra environment that I think are, are necessary for a, a, a service chief. And I'd go one step further than that as well. It's not just it's you, you can't expect those things to be just resident in one individual. You actually need to look at the senior leadership cohort. And so that clear out that occurred because of Admiral Hudson's long tenure and perhaps because of his view of the admirals that he had at the time meant that the, the senior cohort that Admiral McDougall worked with was... Uh, my judgment, collectively not as experienced at that national strategic level as, as you might otherwise have thought, and particularly when you look at, at it in, um, in the shadow, I think is a reasonable way to put it, in the shadow of, uh, of somebody like Mike Hudson, who I think bestrode the Navy in a way that probably no chief had since, probably since Collins. So. Okay, thanks, Alistair. So we'll just go back, to, uh, Will, to you. Um, so what were... We've heard some of the abiding sort of issues, but what, what were really the issues that David Stevenson had to deal with when he came in? Well, really, I think there were two main main ones, and these aren't necessarily new, and they've been, they've been themes that have been developed um, throughout this day and through, throughout all the um, the officers that we've heard about. Uh, but they just they just, they just take a particular spin because of the um, the historical time and the peculiarities of that. Um, so the first. Really, if we think back to 1973, um, the Vietnam commitment is is, um, is winding up. Um, forward defence as a as a as a concept it had been discredited, and there were strategic assessments that that government took very seriously, saying that there is going to be no major threat to Australia uh, within the next 10 to 15 years. Um, so that's sort of the um, the context. Of the strategic context, and then on top of that, you get um, a Labor government, Whitlam government, that has, in its first couple of budgets, made some um, significant cuts to the defence vote, and so it's pretty obvious what then naturally happens from that. If there's a smaller pie, 
the services will start haggling over. Well, I need to keep this. I need to keep that. And in, and in navy, that's the, the the big debate is about is about the carrier as um as um as we've we've already discussed. And um so in this environment, Stevenson needs to continue to make the argument for not just for the um the the suite of platforms and capabilities that navy already has, but and he, he says this sort of, I think, slightly tongue-in-cheek, but there's probably some truth to it. At the end of 1974, he's saying, I've, I've, I've needed to make the argument why Australia ha- has a navy at, o- at all. Um, I don't think it was that, that severe, but there were questions being asked, there were legitimate questions being asked about resources and why we have X, Y and Z. And so, and, and obviously the, the, the carrier was a big part of that because you had Air Force saying, well, if, if we're all we're doing is just defending continental Australia, why do we need an, an aircraft carrier? Why do we need um, fixed-wing maritime aviation when F-111s will be able to strike anything um, that comes, comes near us anyway? And you know, those, those sort of arguments went, went back and forth. But that, that was really the first big issue that, that he needed to deal with. It was the, the changing strategic environment and then the, um, the, the justification of capabilities that came from that. But the second one... And the one that's more um, particular to Stevenson's context is the implementation of the the Tang reforms. Um, Sir Richard Peake had been had had, um, had been through the the drama of the uh, consultation phase of the of the reforms. Um, they'd been passed, and now it was Stevenson's job to implement them. Uh, and this is really, I think, where his his time as, as, as CNS is, is, is defined. When he's appointed the um, CNS, he has um, he's a member of the Naval Board. There's a Naval Department and a secretary and a, a dedicated minister. When he finishes his time as CNS, there's none of those things. Um, and that's a lot of change for an organisation to um, to go through in a, in, a, in, a, in a short period. And obviously it was relevant to Army and, and, and Air Force as well. Uh, so there were all, all all manner of organisational issues that he, that he he had to um, had to work through. One of the biggest the bigger ones uh, was the the amalgamation of the Navy Department into the the Department of Defence, and what that meant for the loss of uh, naval expertise within the department and within the public service. And um, this was a, a point um, that was brought up in in the, in the previous session, but. Uh, Whatever the um, the value that you place on naval administrators, at least they were dedicated naval administrators in the past. Um, by the time you start to amalgamate the Department of Defence, that expertise starts to to degrade uh, um, experiences and knowledge flattens out or, or generalises. And so, really, Stevenson as CNS has much less horsepower in his in within the, um, the the civilian administration of Navy with which to work. He also doesn't have um, a dedicated secretary who can provide financial advice, um, budgetary advice or, or, or anything of, of that sort. And he doesn't have a, a minister who can, if you're lucky enough to have someone like Billy McMahon, who can, who can advocate within government for Navy's position. And so that, that really radically rechanges the environment. And he put in... He tried to do his best to establish where he could alternatives or um, or, or fill in fill in gaps that he saw, 
but really I think his task, and this is probably something I, I, I touch on when, when summing up Stevenson's period as the CNS, was really just to bed down all of these changes and try and do whatever he could within his small sphere of influence to make the transition not as jarring as, as potentially it could have been. Um, and yes, those are certainly that was certainly his big challenge to deal with as as CNS. Okay, thanks for that, um, John Perryman. You've talked um, a little bit about the carrier issues that Jim Willis had to face, and also some of the Cold War related events. Uh, what were the other major things that really dominated his time in office? Well, I think in the background of the um, the carrier debate was the fact that there was a whole raft of other capability being introduced as well, which had to be uh, managed, overseen. There were all kinds of problems with that. There was industrial action affecting it. Uh, there was the, the manpower. We were having uh, FFGs built over in the United States. We had to send personnel to the United States uh, to do particular training for those ships. So there was a, a drain on resources uh, over and above what one might normally encounter. Um, this all came at a time when re-engagements were down to 69.5% and they were also starting to look at the, the question of women at sea um, and, and that culminated in the, the first female officers going to sea in Jarvis Bay. Um, I think that um, it was a case of really not becoming solely focused on the Melbourne issue, the replacement of Melbourne, although that was foremost in his mind, let me tell you, um, and, and keeping those other projects going. So what were those other projects? Well, the FFGs, we ended up with six, and, you know, the last two of those are still in commission now. So when we transition from a, uh, a carrier navy to a destroyer and frigate force, those frigates were there, and I think that they probably exceeded uh, the expe expectations of many uh, and sustained us through almost our entire time in the Persian Gulf um, and, and beyond. Um, there was modernisations to the DDGs. There was the upgrades of the Oberon-class submarines. There was the implementation of the fast underway replenishment ship success. There was Tobruk. And there was other areas of Navy which seldom get a mention, uh, the hydrographic uh, survey ship Cook. So he really had an appreciation of that. And against all that, when all of these new ships were coming in, and this was touched on earlier um, in one of the previous presentations, is that the shore infrastructure to support all this new capability and technology that was coming with these ships, that also needed to be upgraded. Um, there was a feasibility study done on Jarvis Bay about should that be the home of the Australian fleet on the um, East Coast? And at the same time, as a reaction to the Soviet intervention in the Indian Ocean, which uh, presented a real threat to the Straits of Hormuz and the Western oil supply, that's when you really see the debate about the two-ocean navy come to the fore. Now, I feel a bit sorry for, uh, for Jim Willis um, because... Uh, Invincible is, is offered to us at a uh, price that really couldn't be refused. And when he hands over, it's safe in the knowledge that, you know, I think he genuinely thought that he was handing the Navy over to his successor in really, really good shape. And yet there were other things taking place around the world which would affect that, uh, chiefly the Falkland War. And the Falkland War saw the Invincible-class carrier, which was going to be the preferred replacement, really demonstrate its capability in a most profound way. 
it, it essentially, you know, for, for that task group to go down to the South Atlantic and acquit itself in such a manner was quite extraordinary and I think the world really sat up and took notice. Um, the offer then of the Australian government, which by then was cash-strapped at a time where you had two services competing for the dollar. The Air Force is wanting to replace its ageing Mirage fleet with FA-18s and at the same time you've got... Soviets moving into the Indian Ocean, you've got the Navy needing a new aircraft carrier, so there's fierce competition for the dollar. So when the announcement comes, you can imagine just how happy the Navy was. It really was a case of, you know, uh, if we're going to get invincible, it, uh, we're very, very happy about that. And uh, I think that when you consider that um, 18 days before retiring, uh, the Falklands War erupts, Melbourne is paid off on the 30th of June, 1982, and on the 12th of July, Margaret Thatcher accepts the offer to retain Invincible, and the 2012 Cabinet papers actually confirm that um, the Liberal government, which is on the way out, they dwelt on the decision about whether to pursue this, and in the end, they gave the decision to the Labor Party, and it really just became too hard. Uh, and, and that would have been a tremendous disappointment to him, I'm sure. So, David Campbell, um, we've talked uh, in the previous two episodes about Chiefs of Navy uh, having a, um, a haul-down report. Um, most are a couple of pages. Mike Hudson's the size of a small book, uh, which um, I guess indicates the amount of change and the amount of activities going on. Um, he also had a couple of very good staff officers. He did. He did. <laughs> he did. Um, and... Um, which is all to his eternal benefit. Um, I guess the, the point I'm making there is how much of that was uh, orchestrated by him? Was there a grand plan? And how did he keep track of so many moving parts? He had a good staff. I mean that most sincerely. He did. His immediate uh, staff um, just greased the wheels because he was not all that well supported by his admirals, as I, as I commented. He, his, his abiding achievements have to be for structure, you know, Collins and Anzac. On the other hand, he never got a really good understanding of the challenge of a parent navy. That was something that had to be devil his successes. He was aware of it, but he didn't fully comprehend uh, the challenge and made no special arrangements to cope with that. He had the strategic vision, as I said, also. I mean, just think of the Western Pacific Naval Symposium that he instituted. As, I mean, no one else thought along those lines, but Hudson did. Um, so just for the benefit of listeners, do you want to just explain what that uh, innovation was? Well, every couple of years uh, in, the, uh, in the United States, there'd be a gathering uh, hosted by the Chief of Naval Operations at Newport. And this was the... West, this was the um, What's it called? The Global International Sea Power Symposium? That's it. Anyway, that was on every every second year. Mike went to one of those and came back, as he said, with his batteries recharged. And he conceived the idea of having, in the off year between Newports, a Western Pacific Naval Symposium, which he put together despite opposition from the Department of Foreign Affairs and with no assistance whatsoever from SIP Division. Strategic International Policy Division. And that was everybody from, from uh, China, Japan, South Korea, the Philippines, uh, Malaysia, you name it. 
and it was a very successful initiative. Um, I understand it uh, continues successfully to this very day. It had significant achievements. I mean, in the um, uh, in law of the sea, and just just being able to keep the dialogue going as far as piracy, for example, was concerned. No one else thought along those lines, but he did. When he took over as CNS, the Navy's morale was abysmally low. They were still getting over the, the loss of the carrier, for example. In his first year, he virtually stood the fleet down. No exercising in 85 to speak of. Instead, the Navy was to have a good time. And they were sent out to go and visit all the, all the capital cities and have a good run ashore. And that was capped by the 75th birthday and with the fleet, uh, with the fleet review, which was a huge success. I think that he, he had a reputation of being cold with people, and that was certainly how he used to come across to many people, but deep down he really understood his people. And that action of standing down the fleet and really throwing his weight behind the 75th birthday party, to me, tells just what a good personnel manager that he really was. How he kept it all together? He had a good staff. He also had an excellent deputy in the shape of Neil Ralph. Neil, Neil was a champion deputy. He's the model for a deputy chief of naval staff. There was some comment also, which um, I guess this is one aspect we haven't touched in these podcasts, about the physical strength of people to be able to maintain a tempo in office. Can you just want to comment on that with Mike Hudson? What, on his appreciation of people well, able to keep up with to him? And keep the work tempo for such a long period of time. What, for, for him personally? Yes. Oh, he was just supercharged. He was just a bundle of energy, this bloke. Yeah. Yeah. I had, I had nothing, but, nothing but admiration for him. Don't forget, he was also contending with the, um, with the Dib report which came on early in his, or just before he, he, he took over. He had to implement DIB, and that was difficult for everybody. Um, and then towards the end of his time, of course, he had to put up with um, uh, the CDF coming on the scene. And that changed the, uh, uh, the environment in Canberra again altogether, as his previous uh, predecessors had had to tolerate too. I mean, ever since Stevenson's time, when it all began after, um, uh, what's his name? Tang, there was just a succession of one catastrophe after another as far as uh, relationships within defence and with government were concerned. So just one final point on with Hudson's tenure. Um, during that time was the Gulf War. Yes. Any particular comments there in terms of speedy deployment of, of RN Task Group or the, or the effect of having that? that um, uh, I was, I was uh, attaché Washington at the time, so I have a different a different perspective on all of that. I didn't see what was going on in Navy office. I saw what was going on with the USN and I saw what was going on with our relationship with the USN. I didn't have a, a clear view of what was going on in Canberra. I had a better idea of what was going on in, in fleet headquarters with Ken Doolan than I had of what was going on in Canberra. Yep. Okay. All right. So we'll have to read the... Uh the chapter of the book for, that, so. for that aspect. Um, so, Alistair, so we've heard that there's issues about parent navy that um, are, are going to probably land on Ian McDougall and, and probably his successors, um, and also the issue of women at sea, the actual implementation of quite a profound change in the way the Navy operated. Do, do you want to just talk about how 
how did Ian McDougall deal with those, those two issues? Just those two issues. Well, um, I think I think turning to the to the women at sea piece first. Um, Ian McDougall um, probably started out with the same appreciation that that his predecessors had had that that having having women more more completely engaged in in the business of the navy was a good thing, probably the the right thing. And, and they were going to do it. Um, they had fundamentally not appreciated the, the size and complexity of that task and the, the cultural reform that was required to make it happen. Um, and so as a result, the actions that Navy took were, um, I guess, haphazard in a way. Um, there were some successes um, uh, in terms of the way things were done. And the deployment of Sydney to the Gulf in '92 was probably a good example of how it could work. But then there were examples with, um, uh, and most obviously, um, Swan, and and the way in which some people behaved um, uh, there, which which really showed that it it could go horribly wrong. And and so the the cultural side of of how you, um, I guess, created the, the the more modern navy that we we're more familiar with now, really landed on Ian McDougall, um, and I think he, he hadn't anticipated that it was going to be such a big issue. Um, uh, Can I interject there? Yeah, please. <laughs> the problem was that the hierarchy in the navy, SINSAC, uh, saw the women in the Navy issue as heads and bathrooms. Mm. They did not get the culture. Uh, no. and, you know, it finally dawned on McDougall in his, at the end of, more at the end of his time that that's what it was about, culture. But other, other, up until then, it was heads and bathrooms. And, and, I'd, and I don't think he was alone, probably not alone, even at, at you know, just senior levels, let alone the rest of the Navy. But I think in the end he did get it. And and so you see this dawning realisation that actually this is a really, really big thing. And um, a lot of people around this table would be familiar with the Good Working Relationships Program. Um, and uh, it, was, um, uh, uh, it was driven into Navy um, with vigour. Um, uh, possibly you could say with malice aforethought. Um, uh, by later Chief of Defence Force, um, then uh, Deputy uh, Maritime Commander Chris Barry was the uh, person who went round and did, did most of it. The Fleet Commander, um, Rob Walls, was the one who I think provided the, uh, you know, <laughs> probably the vim and the vigour to the whole thing. And, and McDougall was the one who provided, I guess, the overall strategic direction. I, I agree um, with that very strongly. And I, I was his deputy mm, when this was going on. Mm. And um, as you say, he got it and he pursued it with vigour. A couple of years ago, I put it to Ian, he's a great chum of mine, I put it to him that he, was, um, he should not either have spent much longer at CNS or not at all. Hmm. And he didn't disagree. He, he didn't have time to implement what he wanted to do. NQM, Naval Quality Management, is the standout issue yep. in that regard. So... Um... <laughs> 
So we, we should talk about and naval quality management, but yeah. just to finish off that women at sea. Okay. It, I think we've really covered it. It, it, it wasn't what he anticipated um, and it took a while for him to get it, but then he oversaw what I think is the, um, you know, uh, the start of the way in which we really um, think that the Navy operates today. And I think if you pull to pieces most of the, the cultural pieces around around women at sea, you can see that, that large portions of them are very similar to what was put in place in good working relationships. So um, probably to finish off that story, though, he was sufficiently confident and committed to the way ahead for women at sea for him to um, say that women would serve in submarines. And he thought that as a submariner, he was probably the best place to be able to to um, make that decision because you know, the, the submarine community, which is in, in many ways a, you know, a community unto itself, um, would not be able to turn around and say, no, it, it can't be done for, he, for, for whatever reason because you know, they wouldn't be able to say it to another submariner. Okay. Um, so now moving on to uh, naval quality management, which was a version of total quality oh, management. Um, so do you want to just talk about that um, particular issue? Sure. Um, you, you really um, one of the, I think you need to rewind a little bit. Um, one of the things that um, Ian McDougall did um, was he, he saw the Navy that he was taking over, uh, taking over as very staid um, and in need of a shake-up. So NQM and what went with it, program management and budgeting, um, uh, were really very significant, quite micro, um, you'd almost call them microeconomic reforms of the way in which Navy, Navy went. Um, uh, it, they were the, the most visible outworking of it uh, were process action teams, which were designed to find better and more efficient ways of doing almost anything you care to do take a look at. Um, you also need to remember that um, oh, sorry. So, so it was it was really intended to be a fundamental reform to, to shake Navy up. I think it was very poorly implemented. Um, it hadn't been really I, I, don't, I don't think they'd quite understood how it might take effect within the Royal Australian Navy. So Total quality management is, is originally a USN activity and I think particularly in their aviation world. And the USN is a much more data-driven organisation than the Royal Australian Navy, particularly in the early 90s. Um, and to, to do that sort of um, low-level reform, you need more data and you need to explain to the people who are going to be doing the reform what it is that they're about and how they're going to achieve it. McDougall fundamentally failed to take the Royal Australian Navy with him on the NQM journey. It had a lot of potential, and when we have a look at subsequent attempts at cultural reform, again, you can see a lot of the, the tools and mechanisms. Um, it, it, it's all quite familiar when you start to look at NQM. But McDougall did not take the Navy with him, and so within, I'd say, 12 months, although nobody was willing to... Uh, no, 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 no other admiral was disavowing NQM. Um, within 12 months of McDougall finishing his tenure, it had just quietly got lost and and never to be heard of again, I think is probably the nicest way to put it. Um, yeah. 
Okay, thanks, Alistair. So um, just in summing up, I'd just like to ask each of you just to reflect on the uh, service chief that you've been talking about and uh, any sort of concluding remarks. So, uh, Will, first off, for you. Well, Stevenson is very much, I think, an, an enigma when we um, situate him within the ranks of the uh, the chiefs of naval staff that came before and, and, and came afterwards. He doesn't leave or hasn't left a particularly strong legacy in Navy. Um, that was partially because of the circumstances around his, uh, his time in that position. There were um, all of the changes that were taking place were not of his making. They were um, forced upon him from, from above and he just had to deal with them. But also he himself had, had an approach that where he said, I am not going to try and do or I'd try and shape Navy uh, the way that I want to because I, we just need to bed, bed in these, um, uh, this new structure, get used to that. There's already an, enough change going on. I, I, I don't have the, the, the capacity to do anything that, that, that I want to do. I think, and that, that was, I think, the approach that he took during the, the implementation of the Tang reforms. Um, and so as a result, I think he, as CNS, he's a very... He, can, he comes across as a little acquiescent. He just accepts what's being given to him. And I think that's, that's the only sort of course of action he can take at, the, at that point. Um, that's actually both with the Tang reforms plus the, um, interestingly, something I didn't mention, the, the FFGs. They sort of get... That's a, that's a decision made by Cabinet... Um, by Defence Minister Lance Barnard. He said, once we scrap the DDLs, like, these, these are going to be our new ships. You're just going to have to take them regardless of um, whatever your your reservations are about them. And, and Stevenson says, okay, I, I do have reservations, but this is what we've got, so this is, this is what we have to work with. And I think that, that sort of... That approach of, of being very pragmatic defines um, how he, he, he went about his, um, his duties. Um, he isn't given the ability to, to shape Navy, but Navy nevertheless sh reshapes around him, particularly in, in Canberra, and that's sort of that's, um, that's just what he has to deal with. One sort of interesting point um, to finish up with, I can't remember if I mentioned this before, but he actually didn't want the job when it was um, when he was informed that you are going to be the nomination for the next um, uh, Chief of, of, of Naval Staff, and he was, he was actually quite upset about it, and he came to, to accept that, and apparently came to quite enjoy the role. Um, so I'm not necessarily sure what that says about uh, about him as a person that he, he didn't want the job, but he he took it and and, and, and sort of and and ran and and ran with it. But I, I thought it it spoke to the character of the man who, against whatever circumstances he um, he was in and against his own preferences, he still went ahead and 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 did the job that he he needed to do. And I think that that was probably the the defining trait of his time as the uh, CNS. Thanks very much, Will. Um, John Perryman, uh, what's your final thoughts about gentleman Jim Willis? I think that um, uh, overall Jim Willis did a very, very good job. I think he understood the terrain. Um, I was very interested to read in his oral history interview that um, he felt that uh, one of his observations about officers coming into the, the top job is they, they, they really weren't 
politically trained to do the job. But then he qualified that by saying, nor should they be. He firmly believed that it was inherent on the person in that job to absolutely make it their business to to get into that sort of headspace, get into that strategic advice um, area and, you know, really invest in the role that they've been given. Um, I think... uh, with rounding off the Melbourne issue, uh, what could he have done better? Um, I like to think that lessons were learnt from the HMAS Melbourne uh, episode. Uh, When Melbourne came back from K81, uh, once the decision to replace it with Invincible had been made, she was due to go into a major refit. That refit was cancelled. Melbourne sat alongside Garden Island and was destined never to leave uh, GI under its own steam again, and it was rapidly prepared for decommissioning. It freed up personnel. The money for the refit was saved and could be uh, reallocated elsewhere. Uh, the fixed-wing aviation, uh, there was um, their activities were curtailed somewhat. Uh, so there were savings to be made almost as a concession. And But the ship, it was a, as far as he was concerned, or the Navy was, was concerned, this was a, a done deal, and Melbourne was prepared paid off and as I say just 12 days after Melbourne decommissioned the deal fell through we no longer had a ship capability. I like to think that um, successive chiefs of navy opted for other options. Operational pauses is a pretty good case in point, mothballing that sort of thing, holding it in reserve. I guess it's the old adage of a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Had Melbourne been kept in the status of reserve, it may have been brought back into service in some sort of capacity and that may have influenced the future. It may not have. Who knows? Okay. Thanks, John. Dave Campbell, um, Mike Hudson, final thoughts? I thought he was an exceptionally fine CNS. Um, He had a number of very significant achievements um, to, um, to be proud of. Like anybody, though, he had his weaknesses and he made a couple of serious mistakes particularly as, as we've discussed about the introduction of uh, women, women at sea. But um, I thought he handled the challenges of personnel and money particularly well. Every chief has to deal with that. And some are luckier than others and some are better uh, than others. But his particular challenge at the time, and he often used to bang on this, was my problem is running a two-ocean navy on a one-ocean budget. And it was something, I'm not sure whether he coined that or Beasley did. But anyway, both of them used to use that expression quite a lot. And it really does sum up, uh, at that period of our history, the, the, the terrible impact of the problems with money and the problems of personnel had upon exercising running the Navy. But he did a good job. Thank you. Alistair, Admiral McDougall. I think uh, Admiral McDougall... Uh, is going to go down as a uh, his tenure is a point where there's almost an inflection point where you can start to see what I would regard as the modern navy. Um, he he had to operate much more in a joint context, and the start of the joint journey was really getting going during his tenure. Um, we were starting to build significant numbers of ships in Australia um, to designs that were. Although they might have had heritage and commonality, some commonality elsewhere, were really um, s- distinctive enough to be our own, and and for us to then have to be responsible for them, 
and for the Navy to start learning what that actually meant and communicating that not just within itself but to the rest of the Defence Force and the rest of government. All these things started happen, happening during um, uh, uh, McDougall's time or manifesting themselves um, in, during Ian McDougall's time. Um, and you can look at the issues around the actual delivery date for Collins and whether it was or wasn't ready and how the, uh, the margins had been managed and whether they were sufficient. Um, he, he was, I think in some ways, um, probably didn't appreciate the level of corporate strategic risk that he, he and the Navy had at the time. In addition to the Collins boats being brought into service, we were busy moving the submarine capability from one coast to another. Um, we were shutting down um, Narimba. Um, training was being being done on a different basis, particularly for engineers. Um, there was all uh, the budgets. Um, we haven't really talked about the budgets, but he had a considerably constrained budget where there was zero um, real growth um, for, for a number of years, just at a time when Navy was trying to, to grow and become a parent Navy. And so I think, I think the, the risks that were being run at the time he was the chief were, were actually massive. And I don't know that he had really um, either been able to understand them or communicate that level of risk to, to government. Certainly when you read a lot of um, his public pronouncements through um, the, through Navy News, it was steady as she goes, everything is okay. But yet there was this massive level of activity um, and change going on. So I, I think in some ways he's the start of the, um, of, of the Navy that we, we would uh, perceive today. Um, but I think he, um, he got shaped by the events as much as he shaped them. Um, I'd note in closing, though, where I started about the quality of the individual. Um, it, it was his first job as a chief executive officer um, and in the way we train um, uh, and structure the Royal Australian Navy, most of the time somebody gets to the top, it's the first time they're doing that CEO's gig. Uh, and it's a fairly complex, sophisticated organisation. Um, so while I think he was probably underdone, um, the fact um, he went on to serve nine years as the Commissioner of the Royal of the Fire Service in New South Wales, also through a period of fairly massive change, probably gives you an indicator of the quality of the individual and and the capacity that they have um, doing their CEO's job a second time around. Thank you for joining us. And for more information on the Australian Naval History video and podcast series, simply search for Naval Studies Group on your search engine. Goodbye for now.